welcome to the ACRI podcast. I'm James Lawrenson, the Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS. Today I'm joined by Dr. Li Wei. Li Wei is an academic in international business at the University of Sydney Business School. She has quite an academic um, resume that consists of a lot of things. Um, one is working on water conservation and renewable energy issues for the World Bank, and also the Chinese Ministry of Environmental Protection, as well as Renmin University of China. But my exposure to Li Wei has really been with her work at the, at the University of Sydney's Business School, particularly in the area of Chinese investment investment in Australia. This is a topic we hear an awful lot about in the press. Um, the problem is there are very few experts on the topic. Li Wei is one of the foremost experts on this topic in Australia. Uh, she's probably most well known for her preparation of the annual Demystifying Chinese Investment in Australia report. Welcome to the podcast, Li Wei. Oh, hi, James. Nice to come to the podcast. Well, we're delighted to have you here. Li Wei, can you start by telling us how long you've been doing this work, um, cataloguing Chinese investment in Australia? Yes, um, we've been working with KPNG for um, over five years now. Um, the, the Very much the original rationale for doing this project was um, we've seen there's a growing number of Chinese companies investing in Australia, um, but then there's very little information about um, what these companies are doing, which industries they are investing and what kind of ownership are those companies? Um, obviously, this had been originally um, a, a bit of a sensitive issue because we see that from local communities, from the government, uh, from companies in Australia, they would like to know more about what Chinese companies are doing and what's their plan and what's their strategy in Australia. So therefore, we started this kind of project um, really very much um, from, from nothing. We started to collect information about Chinese companies investing in Australia project by project and gradually we, we kind of um, put more information to it and each year we update more information into it and of course working with Chinese companies and working with KPNG Australian companies um, is also something quite important for us because um, we really want to go back to the very basic information about what companies and what firms are doing um, and I think that's that's where the original rationale for doing the project. No, it's a great rationale. I mean certainly from my experience a lot of the fears around Chinese investment mostly reflect the fact that we simply don't have data um, and when data comes out um, often a lot of those fears can be um, put into a bit of perspective. And I mm. certainly see your reports as, as contributing to that clarity Thank around you. a very important topic. Um, can I start off with a very big question? Mm. And if it's possible to give me the brief answer, that'd be great, but I know it's not easy. Um, the latest Chinese invest, demystifying Chinese investment in Australia report, what does it tell us in terms of the scale of Chinese investment and also the trends in terms of which sectors the investment is going to and any other important um, standout findings of the report? Sure. Um, for 2015 to 2016, what we see in Chinese investment in Australia has um, increased steadily um, to about Australian dollar 15.36 billion, um, and that's about 11.7 percent increase. Um, compared to Chinese investment in US and in Europe, um, this is very much a moderate increase. But I think um, what is quite important is to say that 2016 is the second largest year on record, um, just be behind 2008 for Chinese direct investment into Australia. And we had the record number of deals signed, uh, around 103 deals being recorded by our database. And also we see increasing number of 
private enterprise from China investing in Australia. Um, that accounts for around 76% of the all projects invested are done by private companies. And in terms of half of the value, total volume of the investment are done by private companies. Um, another interesting thing we've seen um, in terms of the trends of Chinese investment is that we've seen that um, there's gradual transition from investment focus in mining and energy sector, moving into new industries and more diversified industries. So for example, for year 2015, uh, for year 2016, uh, what we see is um, there's record number of infrastructure investment and agriculture investments from China in Australia. Um, in terms of percentage, um, commercial real estate account for 36% of the Chinese investment in Australia, followed by infrastructure, 28%, followed by healthcare and agribusiness, that's around 9% and 8%. So we really started to see that Chinese companies are moving into new areas in Australia. That is very much, I see, aligned with what's happening in China as well, where China is um, transitioning from an infrastructure investment economy into more consumption-based economy. That means they need premium service, premium products, and that is, of course, where Australia has a very strong competitive advantage with. Yeah, that's interesting. And I've immediately got questions about what that means for the future of Chinese investment in Australia, because um, mm -hmm. clearly the transition in China's economy is not going to stop. Mm. Um, and, and so what that means for the future is something I'll get onto um, mm. later on in this podcast. Look, the, the, the picture you just painted was a, was a broadly positive one. Um, you said that the volumes coming into Australia were quite large, growing at a double-digit rate. Now, have things changed, though, Leeway? I mean, this is the big story this year, is around um, capital controls in China. Um, every day I seem to pick up the paper and one story will say it's going to lead to a big drop-off in Chinese investment mm. in Australia. The next mm. day will be saying, uh, it's actually, it's not that big a deal. Mm. Um, what I do know is that the Chinese government has now settled on three apparent categories around overseas Chinese investments. Um, they've got prohibited, they've got restricted, and they've got encouraged. Um, what I'm not clear on, and I guess a lot of our listeners are not clear on, and frankly, a lot of our, our, our financial press isn't clear on either, is what do those three categories mean? Prohibitive is, is, is easy to understand, encouraged is easy to understand, but what does restricted mean? Mm. Yes, um, I think the first point um, to say is that um, this change of regulation or this, this new restriction um, is something shouldn't be seen as something that is very, very new or as a very big surprise. Um, let's come back to the first three categories first. Um, these three categories very much reflect the three categories when Chinese government use for inward foreign direct investment. And although the Chinese government is gradually moving away from that, but that's something that where they have been used for many, many years when they look at inward direct direct investment into China, and they have the three category very much is the prohibited, restricted, and encouraged. Um, second thing is, I think since last year, we see some calls already from the Chinese government um, trying to say that they need to really properly manage um, overseas direct investments um, that's coming from different ministries and even com coming from different government bodies. Um, when talking to Chinese companies, uh, we already started to see that, you know, there's quite a few companies started to talk about, you know, investment in areas, for example, like real estate investments. Um, commercial real estate investment would be less encouraged than before. 
So certainly, I think from the Chinese perspective and also from the Chinese company's perspective, this is not something as a sudden change right. of regulations. It is something has been discussed about, and it's something has been, you know, some of the information have been already, you know, uh, conveyed to some of the companies and to say these are areas actually where Chinese government wouldn't want companies to go into. Um, so back to your question, I think practically speaking, what does restricted um, category means, it's, it's something that it's not properly defined anywhere. But from what I can understand, in practical meaning is to say, you know, areas in this restricted um, categories means that there will be a higher level of scrutiny uh, when companies need to apply for approval to go overseas. And also there will be longer approval process right. as well because more stakeholders need to be involved and need to be discussed about the issues. And there might be some guidelines based on case and case in terms of investment overseas. And that would also mean that it will be getting uh, harder for companies to actually source finance from the domestic bank as well. And I think the other areas which is probably indirectly linked is that you will see less recognition domestically from local government or industry bodies as well, particularly if an enterprise is a local enterprise. That means they might get less support from the local governments related to tax regulations or related even just to rec recognitions in terms of the status of the local enterprise in the local area. So that will be, I think, some of the indirect impact on enterprise. So on the encouraged side, I think what it would mean is government would facilitate through probably government policies relate to preferential taxations, um, easier to get access to foreign exchange, and also insurance, customs, information sharing, but also I think more importantly, that would mean also they would have uh, easier access to the bank um, to finance as well for projects that go into those areas. Right. Okay. So that's very interesting. Um, so we got the two viewpoints. One is that for Chinese companies, it wouldn't have actually come as a bigger shock. But on the other hand, um, mm. there are some real practical implications that yes. could flow out of this as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, the million dollar, billion dollar question, I should say, mm. a lot more than the million dollar question. Um, there's mixed opinions about what these moves will mean for mm. Chinese investment coming into Australia. Um, your work has tracked not only the overall scale of Chinese investment, but also the sectors that it's going into. Mm. Um, you're also on top of these new regulations. So put those together. Um, and, and what do you see as the implications of these new um, rules, even if they are already familiar to most Chinese companies, um, for Chinese investment? in Australia? Well, I think Chinese global investment will be affected uh, because of these new regulations. Uh, but my point is there will be limited um, inference for, for Australia. Um, as we talked about before, actually, Chinese investment in Australia for last year has grown moderately um, to about 11%. However, Chinese investment in Australia has not really experienced a dramatic growth compared to, you know, what's happening in Europe and US. Um, some of the studies that have shown that Chinese investment into US have tripled for the year 2016 because a lot of the investment have gone into commercial real estate, have gone into entertainment, have gone into cinemas, football and clubs. into football clubs, into Europe. Uh, as a result of that, Chinese investment in Europe has increased 77%. So I think one of the good things when you look at Australia that our increase for 2016 was not as dramatic as Chinese investment into US and also into 
into Europe. But the good thing about it is when you look at where the increase is, it's very much steadily into areas where the Chinese government are now encouraging uh, Chinese companies of going. So for example, we've seen that although commercial real estate is still, you know, about 33% of where Chinese investment come into Australia. However, compared to two years ago, um, the share of Chinese investment in commercial real estate that was about 43%. That was when just we come out of the mining boom, where Chinese investment started to diversify into other areas, into commercial real estate. However, in 2016, the percentage had dropped to 35%. And what's more interesting is that, as we just talked about, a lot of investment have actually gone into infrastructure, into transport, agriculture. Um, we had a record um, number of deals recording in agribusiness areas, into renewable energy, into healthcare. And these are all the areas where you can see actually Chinese government wanted, you know, mm. companies to go into uh, because that creates value and that creates, you know, kind of value for, for not just Chinese company, but also they see this is more sustainable way uh, for Chinese companies internationalizing as well. Right. Okay. So the story may not be so negative. Um, there's reasons to be cautious, um, but in fact, a lot of the Chinese investment is falling into sectors that the Chinese government is now actually explicitly encouraging. Is that the basic takeaway? Yeah, I think yeah. for Australia, that's something that what we can see for last year, and and that's a trend that we can see um, happening in Australia in terms of the engagement between Australia and China is much more diversified yep. now, and also into areas where there's really very productive and also areas where there's certainly a very big market in China and also globally as well. I should say personally I'm actually slightly disappointed about the Chinese clamping down on investment in overseas football clubs. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of the Brisbane Raw Football Club and frankly I would be delighted to see some Chinese money um, get pumped into it but uh, the, it looks like it's off the table now. I think the issue is that um, if you look at uh, from a Chinese perspective is that a lot of those companies investing in real estate and football clubs are actually Chinese real estate developers. Um, well, you've done a paper, I think a couple of years ago, um, about the corporate lendings in China. So you would know that, you know, for example, in for Chinese real estate developers, they really have a very high debt ratio. Right. And that ra debt ratio, I think there's some research showing that for 2014, all the listed real estate developer have a debt ratio of around 70% or even more mm. than that. And I think the latest figure for one da commercial property for the first half of 2016, the debt ratio is 72.6%. And for Wang Ke, which is another very big Chinese real estate developer, their debt ratio is 80.6%. And the problem with that is a lot of this debt are actually provided by Chinese banks. So which means a lot of the companies, when they're investing overseas, the funding are actually coming from the Chinese bank. And you can see that actually if any of the investments overseas have a problem, the huge risk that it would cause to the Chinese domestic banking system, yep. not just financially, but also even the foreign exchange risk, will be really very big. So that's when one side for the Chinese 
government or the Chinese side started to think about, you know, this is something that is using uh, domestic bank funding, leveraging, investing in overseas. Uh, and a lot of these overseas projects are really out of their control. Yep. And they don't know, you know, whether these are really genuine investment project or related to companies, you know, making very bad investment decisions. So I think that's one thing that from their side, why, why this needs to be controlled and managed, I think proper managing from, from a risk perspective. Mm, mm. Yeah, this is obviously a topic that you know a lot better than I do. But I can't help but thinking Chinese regulators have a pretty firm memory of what happened to Japanese banks in the 1980s, mm. when a lot of those Japanese banks um, borrowed domestically, uh, bought up real estate assets on the Gold Coast, for example. Yeah. It didn't work out well. And frankly, that, that wasn't the entire story, but that mm. was part of mm. um, the problems that Japan, yeah. Japan's financial system had many decades ago, and frankly, it's never really recovered from. Yeah. All right, um, Leeway, now just to move on to a different topic. We've talked about uh, one of the hot issues around Chinese investment in Australia is what the, these new capital controls mean. Um, the second big topic is, is Australia's foreign investment approvals process. Now, last year we had um, two examples, which is pretty unusual for Australia, of where foreign investment was actually blocked. Um, generally speaking, Australia approves foreign investment. Um, last year we had two cases where it was knocked back and they both involved Chinese bidders. Um, one was the Ausgrid uh, attempt at acquiring the the electricity distribution assets of uh, of Ausgrid, Australia's mm. largest electricity distributor, which got docked back on national security grounds. Um, the other one was the purchase of the S Kidman cattle stations, mm. which eventually got approved, mm. but was knocked back twice on national interest grounds, um, and it only got approved once the Chinese share got reduced down to one third. Mm. Um, look, you've just come back from China, I understand. You've been talking to lots of Chinese companies. So do, do Chinese companies have have any thoughts around Australia's foreign investment approvals process? Um, uh, do these knockbacks worry them? Or frankly, not really, because they know mm. that most Chinese investments do in fact get approved. Yeah, um, I think the one thing to keep in mind is um, talking to a lot of Chinese companies that globalization is really a long-term goal for these Chinese companies. So they, they really understand that for them to compete in the domestic market and for them to compete in the global market, that means they have to go global. They have to learn, you know, how business is conducted overseas. They have to work with international partners as well to learn the technologies and managerial skills. Uh, you're right, the two transactions are, are really small number compared to the amount of transaction that has gone through without problems. And also I think they are seen as individual cases as well by Chinese company. And, and there are some learning lessons probably for Chinese companies to understand, you know, to, to have more talks and communications with Australian regulators will help them beforehand, will help them to actually go through this process easily. So I think that for them it's seen as individual case and, and particularly because both cases are involving very, very big assets um, and, and in one case involve a very big state-owned enterprise. So I think thirdly for majority of the Chinese company, their private companies, their medium-sized company, they don't see this as a, as a, as a major issue for them. And um, the other thing is, of course, Chinese companies, are, they're very much used to ambiguity, that uh, they're very used to regulation uncertainty. So I don't see, for them, you know, this is as a very big surprise because 
this government all of a sudden, you know, change regulation because that's the way they operate in China. In fact, they have a competitive advantage <laughs> to work in that environment. But on the other side, I do see that, you know, uh, one of the major motivation for, for Chinese investors, particularly a lot of other investors to come to Australia to invest, is that they, be they believe that Australia is regarded as a mature and stable economy that is ruled by law. Mm. So I think that's a very important reputation for Australia, um, not just for Chinese investors, but also for, for international investors as well. Th therefore, I think for the Australia side to think about its reputation to attract investments in the long term, so, so it will be important for them to maintain that reputation being a, a mature, a stable economy that is ruled by law. So right. that will be important for Australia. Because when you think about that, that's quite a lot of trust you put on somebody because you're investing a lot of your money into assets that is not within your home country, but it's in a foreign jurisdiction. Yeah, I think we sometimes forget that. Um, if a Chinese company invests in Australia or, mm. or Indonesia or wherever else, it's their, it's their money that's tied up. Um, yeah. in, in a foreign country that's subject to the, the foreign country's jurisdiction. Um, mm. So it, it, it's quite a risky proposition, as you said. Louis, that brings me to a uh, to think about an article I read recently, um, a good one, which made the point that Australia's investment relationship with the US is, to a significant extent, built on shared values. And, and what they meant by that was things like um, a liberal democracy, the rule of law, um, limited government interference. Now, it's true, when you go down that checklist, um, you know, Australia and China don't share mm. a lot of values. We were clearly both countries are not liberal democracies. Mm. Um, the rule of law is pretty different in both cases. Um, so is the, is the investment relationship between Australia and China necessarily going to be stunted um, because we simply don't share those values? Um, I think it's an interesting question because coming back to the question of shared value, um, there's actually a lot of discussions um, in economics and business literature about shared value, but probably coming from a, from a different perspective. Um, one very famous Harvard professor called Michael Porter, um, he wrote an article in 2006 um, actually talking about companies need to create shared value. Um, but I think the idea of shared value is really talking about um, business, you know, the reason for a business to operate in a society is not just for profit, but then is actually thinking about larger areas of values that would not just create it for the business, but also create it for the society. So he was talking about reconceiving products, you know, whether are we making green products and products that are really improving people's life standards and quality of life. He was talking about redefining productivity along the value chain. Are we actually seeing, you know, there's so many different proportion of the value chain, but we're seeing that one very big enterprise is actually capture a lot of the value along the value chain and leaving a lot of small supplies towards the end actually have to suffer, you know, which right. we see a lot in the Australian milk dairy industries. And he's talking about enabling local cluster development, that is meaning bring back, you know, community and bring back out of actually local business in the society. I think those values um, really touch upon the core value of human beings, yeah. you know, being uh, care for the environment, uh, being strive for equality, and being strive for uh, creating something that is um, 
helpful and sustain, uh, sustainable for the society in the long term. So I think those values are values where companies should, should really think about because increasingly there's a lot of pressure from the community as well to say, you know, companies, you're not just you know, making profit is enough. You need to have a social license to operate. And that's a very big discussion in Australia. And that's something where Chinese investors are also conscious about, you know, complying with the laws and regulations about um, creating jobs, about actually creating values to the local community as well. I think these are things where Chinese companies are still a little bit lag behind. Yep. But as I say, Chinese companies are very quick to learn. And this is certainly something that is encouraged by the Chinese government as well. And I think that's some message where, where the Australian companies should, should really also look at, because Chinese companies could be partners for them, you know, to operate in Australia, but also operating um, in other markets in the world as well. And I think that's where China was very keen to get Australia into, you know, a lot of its initiative because mm -hmm. Australia is well known for excellency in those areas. And that, I think in the end, I think that will be something where where it's creating value for, for uh, from a business perspective that is not just narrowly down to one country, but, but where we have a common goal, you know. Right, right, right. So some of the values that Australia has are, are actually quite attractive values for, for the for Chinese business and to some extent even to the Chinese Chinese government as well, as you yeah, said, um, yeah. the Chinese government has invited Australia to be part of certain initiatives. I'm thinking of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, obviously, um, and also it sounds to me, just confirm this for me, is what you're saying is a lot of the values that will drive investment into the future are, are shared values between the two companies, and they're shared values that Australian businesses and Chinese businesses would both be pretty comfortable with. Yeah, I think I think from the business perspective, that um, really create a legitimacy for business to to actually operate in the society, um, that is actually to, to look more than just profit, but actually look at um, some of the extra value that it can create um, to the local community and to the next generation. Yeah. I think that's certainly something where, where Chinese companies have, um, is to say that they have a long-term perspective. But also I see that it's something where, where the Australian companies are also thinking very very, very hard about, you know, uh, like the way we teach our university students um, back in the classroom is actually to give them the sense of social responsibility, to give them the sense of how do you manage technology actually to create values uh, for the society. So I see that these are areas where Australia and China business can collaborate together. Sounds like a pretty positive story going forward. Um, look, Li Wei, we're going to start wrapping this up, but I might ask just two more quick questions. Um, the first one relates to a research report that was done um, by the U.S. Study Centre at, at your institution, the University of Sydney. Um, it, was, it was a great report. It, it highlighted the, the many benefits that American investment in Australia brings. Um, it particularly highlighted um, the high-quality jobs it brings um, and also the technology spillovers as well. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you, in the context of Chinese investment in Australia, it, the report did point out, I should say, that um, a big chunk of Chinese investment went into things like real estate and the report suggested well those sorts of areas don't actually bring big mm. technology spillovers um, so I guess I wanted your thoughts on that um, are we seeing any 
developments in Chinese investment in Australia where we are increasingly seeing it become more sophisticated with more positive spillovers um, leading to higher paying jobs mm-hmm. in Australia. Yeah, I, I've read the report. Um, I think um, what it reminds us uh, is a, it's a very common fact in the end is to say that actually US multinational companies had been historically a major source of capitals or, or major investors in the world, that including in Australia. That means um, US multinational companies really had a very longer, very long history of engagement with Australia. But meanwhile, what happened is Chinese companies are now a major new source of capitals in the world as well, and particularly also in Australia. And that means um, increasingly we started to see Chinese companies um, starting to engage with Australian companies and invest in Australia. So I, I think the report doesn't really mean that there's competition between the two. In fact, what I see is it really reflects um, the complexity of international trade and international investment now. Now we're seeing that global production is increasingly fragmented. That means, um, you know, there's the idea of global value chain is to say a product is no longer manufactured by one company in one country, but rather is manufactured by you know, lots of company contributing parts into the products. So what I see is where um, I talk to some of the U.S. companies in Australia as well, for example, some of the medical equipment companies. One of the reasons for them to be here is because um, they, they become the regional headquarter for Asia Pacific. Um, you know, they set the regional headquarter in Sydney or in Melbourne in Australia because they believe the proximity of Australia has with China or the Asia Pacific regions, because they believe that the trust that Australia has uh, from, you know, people from the Asia Pacific region, you know, there's a medical equipment company where, where they have the headquarter in, in Australia, regional headquarter in Australia, but they regularly send engineers to China to provide maintenance service. And in the end, they believe that this is something that they can convince the Chinese client to say this is very high quality service because they're sending Australian engineers um, to China to help them to solve some of the technology issues. So I think I think those are a very good example to say, you know, there's no not not to say working with one would mean exclusively sure. yeah. and it would exclu- excluding working with the others. Um, another very good example is when you look at uh, LNG development in Queensland, you know, back to, back you know, to my State, which I keep tending to talk about. I don't know why that is. And there was quite a lot of um, international companies are actually developing these LNG projects in Queensland, including also Australian companies. And what I see fascinating about those projects is that you have, you know, European companies coming in, providing the technology know-how. You have Australian companies doing the operational side of the project. And then you have Chinese companies who provide the capitals, but also provide the future market for those those investment projects and I don't see that you know why this couldn't be happening more and more because mm. in the end you very much uh, compete on the ground that a lot of these resources now needs to be very close to the market because a lot of these um, prices are quite sensitive so so that actually com- uh, uh, drag Australia um, international companies and China more closer to each other and that's a very good way to actually uh, leverage some of the pricing risk uh, for Australian business, but also for international investors to invest in Australia. 
Okay. Um, all right, Leeway, one final question. And this is a completely unfair question because I'm going to ask you to comment very concisely on a huge issue. And that is <laughs> clearly a lot's going well in the yeah. Australia-China investment relationship, right? We've got solid numbers there and the growth is, is looking fine. Um, but if there was one policy change you would like to see or an attitude change, I guess, on the part of Australian business, it doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, policy change on the part of the Australian government, what would that be that might really um, give a leg up to the Australia-China investment relationship? Mm. I think the, on the on the government side, it's really we had a minority government. Uh, I think they have done a, a very, very great job, you know, over the years. Um, they really have difficulties in pushing some of the regulations and some of the rules ahead but I think they've done they've done a very very good job you know really busy engaging themselves doing something uh, but at the same time I think with a situation like that it's really good to for the business to think about this is something that they need to take more initiative now um, especially post the mining mining boom era that where where you really can't depend on a few mining companies you know to maintain their business relationship anymore that means a lot of the Australian companies they would have to you know first to be given the the freedom to run business as they want without political interference uh, secondly is really take initiatives to to understand China more and to go to China more recently I just came back from Shanghai with a group of MBA students from from the University of Sydney Business School and um, it struck me really kind of how, how much we, we need to know about China. We have a few students who visit China probably five or ten years ago, you know, as an Australian student and study Chinese there. And this is the second time they went back to China. Uh, I remember one example was, um, was an Australian woman who, who used to study in Shanghai, actually. Uh, and when he was waiting in the train station, uh, the train came a little bit late, um, so they were all just rushing into the platform. And she was really trying to push, you know, into the, into the front of the people and to try to get onto the train. And then we have another MBA student from Fudan University, and he was laughing at her. He said, no, no, people don't do that anymore in China. You know, we, we're now all kill, you know, you don't have to really, you know, push each other and then jump make sure that you jump onto the train so I think that's one one interesting observation about uh, about the business that sometimes you know that China is a country really um, change very quickly right. and rapidly along the time so so for for Australian business you know um, it's true it's really engage with them more and even start from the small thing you know travel to China and start mm. to have a business conversation with Chinese investor here just to you know just to gain that trust and then to to, to start that process I think that would be very helpful you know for them not to feel so worried about you know what's reporting the news about every day what's happening in China because that that really make you feel you know worry but but then once you start to see the people once you start to work with the enterprise once you start to have the trust towards the Chinese uh, companies and Chinese people. I think then by the time you read the news, you'll be, you know, you'll be able to have your independent judgment of that. I think that that's very, very important in the end because the government at the moment is not able to, well, it's helping as much as they can. I think the media is helping as much as they can. But in the end, the corporate really have to, you know, stand up about their knowledge of China, of Asia, uh, about really, you know, starting to work closely with them. Okay, Liwei, thank you very much for that. Um, I really appreciate you coming in here and sharing your insights. Um, 
Uh, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, that really was an expert insight, an expert coverage of Chinese investment and what's happening in particular with Chinese investment in Australia. And it's certainly um, you know, a, a much better insight than you'll often get um, reading just the mainstream press in Australia. Not that I'm knocking the mainstream <laughs> press, but uh, Li Wei yeah. is an academic in, expert in this area, so it was particularly good to have well, her insights. Well, Australian press has done, a, has done a great job. Um, I think I, I often you know, um, read about them, and I think they, they're really trying to, you know, um, know more about China, particularly on the investment side, see a lot more media attention uh, in trying to really capture um, the Chinese investment. But I think this is a process where everybody has to has to have a learning journey that, um, so apart from the press, apart from government, I think companies also, you know, need to, you know, just really form their individual independent view about China and also learn more about this country, what's happening. Okay, great message to finish up on. If you enjoyed this episode, um, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes. Find out more about ACRI's research and events on our website, australiachinarelations.org. Remember, ACRI is the only think tank in Australia that's devoted to illuminating the Australia-China relationship. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.